You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. A very stable genius, Donald J. Trump's Testing of America, tracks the first three years of the Trump presidency, relying on intimate, revelatory interviews with firsthand witnesses and including never-before-reported details. The book delves into Mueller's Russia investigation, President Trump's conduct on the world stage, and goes behind the scenes at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. On January 24th, the authors of A Very Stable Genius, Washington Post White House Bureau Chief Philip Rucker and National Investigative Reporter Kara Lennick sat down with The Washington Post Live to discuss their new book. Let's listen. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, thank you both. Until a few moments ago, I was so honored to be here. And then I realized that Brad Pitt has done this event, and now I can't believe I got you two. Um, We're close enough. Close. Um, <laughs> So thank you both. Uh, thank you for me to, I want to thank you for this opportunity. Thank you all for being here. We have to start with this moment in time. A very stable genius. And you two putting this book together. Um, Carol, you're a Bryn Mawr girl. You are known for having good manners that you learned, that were instilled upon you from your mother, Dolly. You became an investigative journalist. It all just, we heard about it there. Three Polks, two Pulitzer Prizes. Three, actually. Three. Three Pulitzer Prizes by Carol. You yeah. have spent the last One three years. One I shared <laughs> Expertly covering this administration. Philippe, valedictorian of your high school class. Editor of the Yale Daily News. She does her research. Bureau chief of the Washington Post. And you two, uh, a Polk Award and a Pulitzer Prize. You have written a book that in three days is the number one book on Amazon. And the 45th president of the United States of America has called the two of you stone cold losers. <laughs> if there was ever a reason to get something tattooed on your body, it is stone cold losers. Um, how do you feel? Ah, uh, it's unreal. Um, you know, we always think we're the biggest nerds in the room. Um, we are journalists. We're, we're sweaty scribes. We meet people in parking garages and try to get them to tell us things. Um, we, you know, stay up late reading boring documents. We watch C-SPAN. And now we're in this moment where just bringing all the facts that we had to the public about Donald Trump and what makes him tick has been a, a lightning rod. People really reacted to it. It's humbling. Phil and I are both um, elated and, and honored. Yeah, uh, this is the reception of this book is beyond our wildest imaginations. We were afraid uh, that our book was coming out on the same day of the impeachment trial beginning. And of course, in publishing, you have to set your release date like, what, three, four months ahead of time. So we had no idea this would be the environment. And we were fretting like, oh my god, how are we going to get any attention? We'll never make it onto Steph's show on MSNBC. And sure enough, the, the collision of this news event uh, and the new reporting that we bring to bear in this book has created uh, magic around the country. I mean, we're getting messages from all over the country, blue states, but also red states, where the wait lists at libraries are in the hundreds and the stores are sold out, and everybody wants to find out uh, what are these patterns of behavior from President Trump for the last three years? What are these new scenes uh, that we're bringing to light? And for us as reporters, it's really gratifying. 
Why did you decide to write this book? You cover the president every day. There have been a number of books written about him already. I mean, you won a Pulitzer. One could say, like, you got this. Why did you decide to do that? Yeah, I was really heartened to hear this morning when Fred Ryan, our publisher, who we adore, said, you, you know, they could have rested on their laurels. I'm like, wow, we could have? Um, um, <laughs> it, it's, it's a show me what you got lately kind of business. But really, seriously, Stephanie, the reason that Phil and I decided to do this book, um, which was very, very stressful to do while covering this president uh, and this presidency, it was like physically very, very challenging, mentally challenging. The reason is, this is a presidency like no other. Phil and I have been covering him for three years, Phil longer, because he covered the campaign. And it was like shrapnel and bullets and chirons and scandals every hour, every day. Sometimes we literally would write whole stories together or apart and forget what we wrote yesterday because there was something new and, and stunning yeah. and frightening to replace it. So we wanted to, I, we use this line a lot, but we wanted to hit the pause button and, and figure out what happened right behind us that we almost forgot. And what's the pattern? What's the theme? What's really going on behind the scenes? And what we found out was there was a lot we missed in the reporting. There was a lot, there were a lot of people willing to talk for history. I want to go inside these scenes because that's what's so special about this book. But it was a week ago, the Washington Post reported that in the last three years, the president has told 16,241 false truths, misstatements, lies. You've written about many of them in this book. But millions of people in this country are never going to open a page in this book and say, fake news. What do you think about that, given all that you've done and what you know is in here? It's a great question, Steph. We, uh, Carol it's and I- It's the number one reason he's our yeah. favorite guest on TV. He always <laughs> leads with that, yes. But it's true, it's yeah. true. Um, we so wish everybody would open this book and read it or, or listen to the Audible or you know, read, read the ebook version, um, just because there's so much new information here that we think is important for the public to know. But I have to tell you, it, it's discouraging. And it's not just about this book, it's our reporting. It's discouraging when a, a chunk of the country automatically discounts the facts that we're bringing to bear, the, the truth that we're bringing into the light, uh, simply because the president calls us fake news. Uh, we don't view, obviously we're not fake news, we don't view ourselves as the opposition to President Trump, we're simply journalists at work trying to find out what happened, why it happened, when it happened, who did what, uh, and what were those motivations, and we want to unearth that and, and bring it to the public, and, and that's our job. We're going to keep doing it, and I hope that this book finds an audience uh, you know, outside of the, of the blue states. There's a lot of anecdotal evidence that it already is, uh, but we can only hope for that. Uh, let's go into some of those scenes. Uh, many of us had heard about this famous July 20th, 2017 meeting uh, in a room that the president finds impressive, the tank at the Pentagon, where General Mattis, Rex Tillerson, and Gary Cohn had this idea, and others, that they were going to be giving the president a deep dive, a tutorial on American interests abroad. Um, we had heard tangentially how it went. The president uh, was tough on people in the room, basically calling the military a bunch of losers and, and nobodies. Um, but until this book, all we had heard from a person firsthand in the room 
was from General Dunford when he spoke to my colleague Andrea Mitchell about it. We have that clip. The President says he loves his generals. You were with him in the tank this week. Uh, how does he interact with you? Uh, is he a good listener? Can you He loves take me. Us? He loves me. <laughs> least, least, least I think so. <laughs> Look, I'm not surprised you asked me the question, but you'd be surprised if I answered it. Uh, no, I, <laughs> there, I mean, we have just, a, uh, we, just if you could describe the, the kind of interactions. Uh. Sure, he's, he's, uh, he's a very curious individual. He asks a lot of questions. He asks, he asks a lot of hard questions. And, uh, and the one thing he does is he, he questions some fundamental assumptions that, uh, that we make as, as military leaders. Another way to put it, he called them a bunch of dopes and losers. Uh, this is the same meeting we had reported later. Rex Tillerson uh, described the president as a moron. Yes. Take us there. This is a emotionally scarring day in the tank, uh, a, a sacred space for the military, because this is where the decisions of war and peace are made, where the, where the generals of the president, the flag officers, come together to, to really map out the, the way to protect all of us and keep us safe at night. The president is brought there with the plan, again, as you said, by Tillerson, Cohn, and Mattis to sort of get a briefing on, on what keeps us safe. Why are these, he keeps asking, why are these troops here? Why do we spend all this money? Why are these base in, bases in the Korean Peninsula? And he's rejecting and fighting with them all the time. So they want to just create a, a schoolhouse rock kind of episode for the president to explain. Was there dancing involved? No, but there were charts. There were charts and graphics and things to keep his attention because, you know, his intelligence briefers say that it's really hard to keep his attention if you don't have pictures and you don't have his name listed places. So <laughs> they did all of that. And they were also serious because they really had deadly serious things to talk about and they don't want to fight with him anymore. But the problem was the president wasn't having it. He did not like this schoolhouse vibe and he um, began berating them. So when Dunford says here, uh, you know, the Joint Chief, the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff says, you know, he's a curious individual. What we heard from sources was he was barking. He wasn't asking. He was um, saying a lot of uh, terribly derisive things to them. And what's interesting is Phil and I, from my perspective, we feel like we knew this story when we started reporting because were people who before us had, had written about this scene and described it, most notably Bob Woodward, I mean like our icon at the Washington Post. However, <laughs> um, there were people in the room who had promised they would never say some of the epithets that the president hurled at them. Dopes and babies was one, but actually the one that was worse to them was when the president said, I wouldn't go to war with you people. That was, that was a chiller. That was oh, the worst curse word with no curse words that you could say. Um, and they finally agreed to talk to us about it because it was, we explained to them, this is history, we gotta get it right, and you have to make us get it right. So they, they laid bare this moment. Um, I think it's interesting to mention about Dunford for a second, and I'm glad you played that clip, Steph, with Andrea. He thanked Tillerson later for another moment because Tillerson stands up in the tank when everyone is silent. All these flag officers refuse to speak back to the president. Mattis has his head bowed. 
And, and we're told Tillerson realizes none of these guys can talk back to their commander in chief. So he stands up and says, no, you're wrong, Mr. President. He does it again in a December scene um, and Dunford calls Tillerson late at night and says, thank you, thank you for taking the bullets for us. To, you protected us and I'll never forget it. But if the president's conduct is so outrageous, uh, if he has such disregard for our national security, our experts, and it would warrant Dunford to call Rex Tillerson, who maybe left this administration more humiliated, having lost the most reputationally than anyone else. If all of this is so true and the president is such a danger, why don't any of these people come out and say it in public? You know, it's the question so many people have been thinking about over the last year because Mattis wrote his book but did not really address his experiences with Trump. Uh, Tillerson has kept his silence. A, a lot of these guys served, were horrified, uh, and have decided not to speak out. And, and there are a couple reasons for it based on the interviews that we had. And, and one is that they feel honor bound not to criticize a sitting president while he's still in office. That when he's out of office, whether it's a year from now or five years from now, uh, maybe they'll, they'll say their piece. But they'll doesn't get that show? Straight, but they don't want to do it now. But then doesn't that show that they might think he's unprofessional or inappropriate or they don't like him, but doesn't that show that they don't consider him a national security risk? Because if it was actually putting the American people at risk, you would break that. And, and yet, and, I, and we're not saying these specific individuals, yet some of these uh, people who worked in the administration do view him as a national security risk. On the back of the book, we have a few, uh, a few, of, a few quotes from senior people who worked in the administration, and one said, I've served the man for two years. This is what this person told us. I think he's a long-term and immediate danger to the country. And you know that feeling came out from some of the on-the-record testimony during the House impeachment inquiry from some of those national security and intelligence officials, but it is felt deep within this government, especially uh, at the Pentagon, at the State Department, in the intelligence agencies, and yet those officials are so fearful of speaking out because of Trump's uh, tendency to retaliate and, and vow to seek retribution on anybody who's not loyal or disloyal. And it's not disloyal to the country, it's disloyal to Donald Trump personally. That's the, the North Star for him. Wow. Did Rex Tillerson lose the most? I mean, there were other people who joined this administration who, you know, it was like winning Powerball that they got this job, right? And I, I don't mean it in an insulting way, but truly, Sean Spicer, a few years ago, was wearing a bunny suit at the White House uh, Easter egg roll. That was his role. He then got to be press secretary. Rex Tillerson was CEO of one of the largest companies on the planet. And look what he went through. I think um, you know we can't speak for how he feels or his motivations, but I take your point. This is a, um, a blue chip guy who my understanding from talking to a lot of people is that he felt very much a, a duty to serve. He was excited about this presidency in the sense, I think, that General Mattis and Dunford and even, even John Kelly, who was his Homeland Security Secretary and then his Chief of Staff, they felt this was going to be slightly 
um, almost like a public good for them to guide this novice who was the president and happened to be the Republican Party standard bearer, although he's really not a member of the Republican Party in any tra you know, traditional way. I would, I, would, I would poke a little at the premise. Rex Tillerson's doing fine. He's in Dallas. He's buying gorgeous mansions. Um, he is going- <laughs> Mansions with an S at the end. <laughs> totally. Wait till you look online. Not just um, yeah. He's doing pretty well. And he said in his um, public statement, you know, I am always grateful. I will never regret the chance to serve. There are other people who have found a really hard time getting jobs uh, in the wake of serving Donald Trump. Um, it has hurt their, their reputation. It has hurt their ability to be taken seriously. I'd rather you know, not name them and call attention to that, but I feel for them because I think their goals in coming into this presidency were certainly to a resume builder, but also to guide. But to hold on, do you really feel for them? There are no surprises here. Anyone who joined the administration knew exactly where they were going to work. But would you have wanted John Kelly, as you know, uh, as one of our wonderful sources told us, you know, this was a cabinet playing whack-a-mole, you know, batting down the president's bad ideas, stopping his rash and undisciplined decisions? Would you have wanted them not to be there? Sorry, that was a question. Just kidding. <laughs> no, I like that. Um, I want to talk about some of the president's um, bits of his ignorance, I guess I would say, um, and how that could potentially be used against us. You talk in the book about a meeting the president had with Modi of India, where he says, you guys don't have to worry about China. They're not a risk to you, because China doesn't border India. <laughs> of course it does. So we can laugh at that, oh my goodness, I can't believe he didn't know that, he didn't know what happened at Pearl Harbor. But I want to talk about the actual impact. Because in the last year, we saw Modi introduce the Citizen Amendment Act, mm -hmm. which critics say has marginalized the Muslim population in India. And at any other time, our government, our president, would not stand by while a nation ally of ours would do something like that. Is this an example of other world leaders using the president's ignorance to advance an agenda that they couldn't at any other time? It's a good, it's a good point about Modi. Um, it, it, after this meeting, and it happened early on in the, in the Trump presidency, Modi was just so shocked by, by the apparent ignorance of President Trump about that region and about India's complex geopolitical situation that India backed away from the U.S. for a bit. Now Trump and Modi are much closer three years later, but the consequence for the U.S. is we had a trade partner who had opportunities to be working with China, to be working perhaps with Russia, with other countries there. They don't have to be allied with the United States, deciding to back away from the United States because of the president's policies. And we see this play out elsewhere. There are, um, there are other leaders around the world who have decided that they can find ways to manipulate Trump and his administration because of the uh, lack of experience and knowledge and sophistication in, in world affairs and geopolitics. We see it uh, in the Middle East. We see it the way the Saudis have treated uh, the United States. We see it in other areas as well. And another consequence of, of the ignorance issue, if we want to call it that, and this is illustrative through that Pearl Harbor example where Trump is going to visit the USS Arizona Memorial and tells John Kelly, John, what is this all about? 
like not really understanding what happened there, is Trump's just disconnected from the American story. He doesn't, because of his, his lack of historical knowledge and interest in reading history and understanding it, he doesn't fully appreciate the American story, where we came from, uh, what our history is, what decisions have been made in the past and what leaders have learned from them. Uh, and so he's acting on the fly based on his impulse and gut, which, you know, to his credit, sometimes is really right. Uh, but without that, it, without that base of knowledge. Sometimes it's right. Sometimes do Washington insiders get themselves so ruffled about how unprecedented things are so ruffled in a way that the American people don't care. An example would be the amount of turnover in the White House or the amount of open positions. Yeah. When you speak to Washington insiders, they are aghast with how many open positions. But when you speak to voters, and I don't just mean red state voters, I mean a lot of voters, they say, I don't know, haven't I always thought the, 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 the government is super bloated? Can't we use a few less deputies of deputies of deputies? Totally, I mean, that's one of the, you, you, just your question raises, the issue of how people feel in, you know, what are derisively called flyover states. You know, Germantown or Frederick, Maryland, not a very long drive from here, I've, I've heard voters say, you guys are so hard on Donald Trump. You keep, like, pressing him about this issue of, you know, wow, he, people keep getting fired. Well, maybe he should fire more people. Maybe we should get rid of a lot of the State Department. You know, they don't have as much exposure and experience. Like if you worked in the State Department, you would understand why a principal deputy uh, or a, a deputy chief of staff actually is critical to getting a policy decided and moved, get the ball moved forward. But you know, this to me raises the larger point about Donald Trump, which is man, he has a master connector with, with people who are angry at the government, frustrated, feel like their taxes are too high, feel like Congress is do nothing, which in some respects he's totally right about. Um, but he's been able to make them feel he's their fighter, he's their champion. And um, government waste, there's nothing but readers for that. Can we talk about the president's emotional intelligence? You uh, have been to many, many Trump rallies. Yesterday, I was in Western Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. I was in coal country where many people are scratching their heads saying, why does the president's base stay with him even though the policies he promised them, the jobs he was going to bring back, he hasn't? When I was there yesterday, it was very clear to me that base is staying with him. And they don't feel like, yes, maybe he hasn't done anything in three years, but they said, we've been suffering for 40 years and no one came here. Not just that August in 2016 where Hillary Clinton was in East Hampton raising money, not on the road, but they said even when other Democrats ha have gone to their states over the years, they don't hold rallies where all of those forgotten voters are welcome. They hold private events with union leaders and those union leaders then step out and say, uh, men and, you know, time to get out there and vote for this Democrat and they're saying, why? I'll pay my union dues, but my life isn't better. Can you speak about the value of those rallies and what he has done to really make a, a portion of our population seen? Yeah, it is, it is a complete phenomenon, uh, the Trump rallies, and I started covering them from the very beginning in 2015 uh, through now while he's still president. And first of all, they're, they're massive. They're unlike any other political event that I've been to. 
20,000 seat arenas packed. People are in line for hours beforehand to secure their spot on the arena floor. They bring their coolers. They have their you know, lawn chairs set up outside. It, it, it's a festival. It's a carnival. It, it, it's a community event. And they drive for hours to get there. And then once you're inside the arena, it's fun. It, there's loud rock music, there's food, there's signs, there's flags. Everybody feels like they're a part of a community and they're being respected and included. And here we have the President of the United States who's flying in on Air Force One uh, to be there to see you <laughs> and, and to, to rally with you. And, and so as much as they're responding to Trump's supporters are responding to his policies, they're also responding to this sense of inclusion uh, and community and being respected and being uh, being addressed by the president. You know, he's not going just to Chicago or Milwaukee or San Francisco, but he's going to Altoona, Pennsylvania, and he's going to Greenville, South Carolina, and he's going uh, to these places where presidents have not traditionally gone. And I would add to that, Phil knows these rallies like nobody's business, and he's tramped through unbelievable mud to get to them on time. He's really an impressive. I've invested in several pairs of noiseless, noise-canceling headphones because <laughs> it's so loud. The rock music is so loud, you can't, I can't work <laughs> in that environment. But and, go ahead. Yeah, and you say they're joyful events? For his supporters, they're joyful. They're, they're you know, as a reporter uh, at the rally. You're probably not that popular. There's an incredible hostility. We're in a in a press pen that's very exposed on the arena floor, and um, you know, not everybody, obviously, but there are always some supporters who will will give us a certain signal with their fingers or or say things that are that are less than kind. So is it, a single your number not, one? It's not a joyful experience as a reporter. Yeah, number one. I would add, in addition to his amazing work ethic, that um, feels right that the people who are at these rallies feel included. But there's something else they're feeling, stuff, which is being politically incorrect, whatever that means for you, but being incredibly raw is also celebrated at these rallies. And yeah. if you see, uh, if you see people using epithets, if you see people using racist terminology, if you see people. Um, body part names on signs, all of that's welcome. Um, I, I found it really troubling to dig down into one of these rallies where an African-American woman who came to protest the president's um, venom towards Muslims, she came with a sign and she raised the sign, and you all have probably seen this video, she was shoved um, forcibly by numerous men who jumped out from different parts of the crowd to, and she was almost like a bobbing top at this rally. Uh, it was during the campaign, I believe it was 2016, in Louisville, Kentucky. So certain things are celebrated and included in these rallies, but, um, but there are a lot of things that are not included, and it's, it's very scary. Can I add one more thing about the rallies? Um, I spend a lot of time there interviewing uh, the people who are in the crowd, and I think it's important to point out that you know, they're teachers, they're nurses, they're lawyers, they're real estate folks, they're, they run shops, they're bakers. Um, these are people in the community, uh, all across the community. They're not um, fringe characters. They're, they're, they're truly uh, members of their community in good standing who uh, feel very strongly about this president. I want to talk about the Russia investigation. It um, consumed many of us. It consumed the president. Uh, for the last few years. S can you speak to how the president approached 
his admin, I mean, he was so furious with Jeff Sessions for recusing himself. For a long period of time, he desperately wanted Rod Rosenstein to leave. He felt that everyone should be working for him, not the United States. And Rod Rosenstein felt this pressure so much that he had organized in his department fire drills to prepare people for the day the president finally sent him packing. Can you talk to us about this? You know, it's hard to imagine this um, as reporters who covered a lot of different presidencies, but in the Justice Department, they were not just um, talking casually about a Saturday night massacre. They were actually planning for it at any given moment. There were um, senior aides who, whose job it was to quickly rush to whomever would replace Rod Rosenstein if he had been decapitated and fired, rush to that person within a certain number of minutes and uh, communicate to them how to hold off the White House from taking any other actions. Uh, one deputy to Rod, Rod Rosenstein was informed, we need you to just stay within 45 minutes of the Department of Justice headquarters at all times until further notice. Um, there was another deputy to Rod Rosenstein who was warned, you know, here's what I need you to do if the White House calls you after Rod is fired, um, just tell the White House you need more time to study you know, the documents before you can do anything. Just hold them at abeyance. It's kind of a frightening thing to think about that they all you know, envisioned this happening, but they weren't wrong because what we learned in our book was uh, Phil and I were discovering, we thought, a lot of different interesting episodes of the way the president behaved, but we learned something Robert Mueller never did, which is that the president was actively talking in January 2018 of getting Rod Rosenstein fired based on this memo from a House member in Congress, and he was yelling at the television at the top of his lungs before he went to Davos that this was the way they were gonna get rid of Rod. He was telling his chief of staff on the phone, who was probably holding the phone at this distance, although I don't know for sure, um, and um, just demanding it, and I'm gonna avoid saying this curse word again, which we say so often in the book, I'm sorry, but he was Hold yelling. Oh, good man. <laughs> he was just yelling, this is my effing Justice Department, why aren't these effing people doing what I need? This is the effing Trump Justice Department. He wanted them to release this memo that would allow him to finally fire Rod. All of that being the case, and there being actual preparations for a Saturday Night Massacre. And then when Rod Rosenstein eventually left, he basically wrote a memo that said, you're the man, I love you." He did. Uh, you know, he, he didn't leave until the end of the Mueller investigation. And, you know, Rod Rosenstein is a Republican and uh, was appointed U.S. Attorney by George W. Bush. He believed in a lot of Trump's uh, conservative agenda items. He believed in what they were doing at the Justice Department separate from the Russia investigation, the, the, the other uh, pieces of that operation, and enjoyed serving this president. I don't, I don't know, I, I can't speak to his motivations for that letter, um, but he was, he, he was a loyal Republican who was grateful, I believe, to be the Deputy Attorney General and to do what he was able to do. But he, to, Carol, to Carol's point earlier, he uh, went through extraordinary hoops to try to protect the integrity of this Russia investigation. Uh, 
and there were a number of scary moments. There was another moment where he actually thought he was being fired because the New York Times, you might remember this, reported that Rod Rosenstein had, um, I don't want to watch this, had, yeah, had worn a wire. Had, had offered, offered to wear a wire. jokingly or seriously, it wasn't decided he'd wear a wire on the president when talking to an FBI agent and said that maybe they could invoke the 25th Amendment, which he denied. And he thought over the weekend of that reporting he would get fired. There were plans in place at the Justice Department to, to order the succession, and actually uh, they got a rumor from another reporter that the, Trump, the president had made the decision to fire Rod, and so his aide you know, rushed in to get him ready. Rod was doing, Rosenstein was doing goodbye photos with the staff at the Justice Department, packing up his things, and then went over to the White House, and, and Trump told him, no, I'm not firing you. Where'd you get that idea? And then they became best friends. So it, which, there were moments like this. Which, by the way, that Dostoevskian scene where he thinks he's going to be fired, takes the goodbye pictures, and then finds out he's not going to be fired, is all uh, ultimately, we learn, driven a lot by Fox News. Fox News, uh, Sean Hannity was telling the president behind the scenes, you know, you can't do this. If you do this, it's going to be a big nightmare. If you fire him, don't do it. So it's interesting who his advisors are in reality. <laughs> then given all that you reported, Pulitzer Prize winning reporting about this Russia investigation, all that you know that you haven't even been able to report because it hasn't met um, Washington Post standards, but you do know what you know. When you first read Bill Barr's four page summary of the Mueller report, what did you think? I remember where I was, um, which was inconvenient on a coast with my family, their spring break, I was obviously working in the back seat of the car. <laughs> but a lot uh, of the book was done in from the back seat of Carol's van, <laughs> going with her family places. <laughs> Go ahead. That's true. Um, I remember reading it being, wow, this isn't really what I was expecting, because um, I even know about more coordination between the campaign and the and, and the Russians who were operatives for the Kremlin, I'm surprised by this. Um, but we, you know, as you know, Steph, we came to find out that um, Barr's summary of the events and his claim that the report exonerated the president was, was highly misleading and led to a really interesting uh, contretemps and dispute between he and his good friend, Bob Mueller. They'd gone to each other's children's weddings um, and this started a phone call between the two of them where Bob was like, uh, you're going to need to issue um, some sort of clarification. Yeah. I'm going to just take a break for a moment. If someone could come grab this, the, I want to share some of the Twitter questions, but I think they've given me the wrong uh, Twitter page because the questions I have are about, have any scooter or e-bike mobility firms committed 100% <laughs> to clean electricity? So if somebody from Watchable Slide wants to We're grab this qualified for that um, and give me a new one, I, I'm happy to talk scooters. I'm guessing you don't want to. <laughs> um, sorry. How did you feel when you saw it? Like, I, Help me understand the impact on this newsroom when the days even following Bill Barr's assessment and the president saying, look, nothing to see here. And here we even are months later when a lot of the American people feel like, well, wasn't that nothing much? You know, there was, and it was a long you period. You know so much. <laughs> and we know so much now that we didn't know in, in real time. What we didn't know in real time, but that's documented in the 
the second to last chapter of the book, uh, is how alarmed Mueller and his team inside the special counsel bunker were with how Barr treated their report. And there were angry phone calls. There was a letter. Uh, uh, Mueller actually called Barr to complain. They felt like they were the, the, they felt like Barr and his deputies were misleading the public, and there was a PR problem. Mueller even contemplated putting out some sort of statement to refute the four-page bar summary. That didn't happen, obviously. Why? I'm sorry? Why? Well, they, the special counsel's office had not commented publicly on really anything throughout that whole two-year investigation, and they weren't prepared to break that protocol. Um, they, they wanted Barr to issue the executive summaries from the report, which documented in much plainer language uh, the nuances of the report and made clear that the president was not totally exonerated as the president had been claiming on, on Twitter and in public, uh, Barr wouldn't do so. Barr and his team felt they, they were going to release the entire report once it's redacted and ready. That ended up taking, I think, about a month, and there was this whole waiting period. But in our newsroom, we knew, we knew that Barr's summary was not the full story, and we knew, obviously, that Trump was not totally exonerated because even the summary acknowledged uh, that much. And so there was just a period of waiting to see the full report. We wanted to see the actual facts for ourselves before we could, uh, before we could assess and draw conclusions about what the president did or didn't do. But you know, to add to that, there was a, um, a huge political and almost like gamesmanship advantage to what Bill Barr did because he yeah. was the first word and the only word because Mueller, uh, one thing Phil and I talked a lot about in writing this part, portion of the book was Mueller was like sort of operating in a 1950s good guy DOJ dragnet way, and Bill Barr was operating in Trump world where, you know, hey, whoops, you didn't get your report out, but I got my press release. Um, it was really, a, a, it was dead silence from the Mueller people, and Barr controlled the story, so to speak, just as Trump has. I just want to read a, a quote that I think is really powerful to this point from Frank Fugluzzi, who you know from, from MSNBC, a former FBI colleague of Mueller's, who told us in describing how, how Mueller was outfoxed by Barr, we're the Twitter society, we're the digital streaming society, we're the scan the headlines to get some news society. That's not Mueller, that's not a 400 page report. Somebody's got to show their face on a TV screen and scream and yell. What many of us have asked is, in the age of Trump, as steadfast as Mueller's been to the principles of democracy that got us here, has Mueller served us well with this style? The answer is no. That is chilling. Uh, then let's talk about the president misleading the press and as it relates to the Mueller investigation. Um, you talk in the book about how the president over and over said, I'd love to sit down with Robert Mueller. I'll answer his questions anytime. But behind the scenes, his lawyers pressed him, pressured him, begged him not to do so, knowing that, yes, he's a great salesman, but had he sat down with Mueller, he would, without a doubt, perjure himself. You report that the president had conceded. He had said behind the scenes to his lawyers, okay, you're right, I will never sit down with Robert Mueller. And then after doing so, John Kelly's doing an off-the-record meeting with the press, and Trump busts in and says, I would love to sit down with Robert Mueller. Can't wait to do it. Don't we have a tape of that? Actually, we do, we do, we do. Maggie Haberman uh, actually caught the audio. I think we have that. Are you going to talk to Mueller? 
I'm looking forward to it, actually. You yeah. want to? Do you have a date yeah, set? Just start. Just Do you have a date set, set There's Mr. been President? no collusion whatsoever. Yeah. There's no obstruction whatsoever. And I'm looking forward to it. I do worry when I look at all of the things that you people don't report about with what's happening. If you take a look at, you know, the five months' worth of missing texts, that's a lot of missing texts. And as I said yesterday, that's prime time. So you do sort of look at that and say, what's going on? Mm -hmm. uh, you do look at certain texts where they talk about insurance policies or insurance, where they say the kinds of things they're saying. You've got to be concerned. But I would love to do that. I'd like to do it as soon as possible. When will you Good do luck, it, everybody. Mr. President? Do you have a date set? So here's the story. Do you have a date set, Mr. President? I, I don't know. No, I think, guess you're talking about two or three weeks, but I would love to do it. Would you do In person. You know, again, it's, I have to say, subject to my lawyers and all of that, but I would love to do it. <laughs> okay, it's funny, but it's not, okay? You're covering the President of the United States day in and day out, and right there, he actively walked into a room and told the press corps a bald-faced lie. He not only actively walked into this room, I mean, he, he literally left a meeting with his lawyers to dash down to tell everybody he was eager to do it. They're talking about doing it in two to three weeks. Now, let me, let me turn the dial back for that time stuff. It's like, at that moment, every reporter in Washington was trying to press to figure out what was going to go on with the interview. We knew that Robert Mueller had had a meeting with the president's lawyers and had pressed for it in January. And we didn't know what the answer was. And the president's going around saying, I'm eager to do it. I'm eager to do it. And we're like, OK, maybe, maybe. But literally days before this January 25th meeting, and thank you, Maggie, for capturing that audio, um, the president had decided that they weren't going to do the interview. His lawyers had basically thrown down books on the table, thrown down the gauntlet, and said, you cannot do it. Here's why. And he agreed. And they literally canceled the January 27th meeting that was tentatively scheduled, helicopters on standby for Camp David. So sometimes I go back to what a source told Phil and me, which was, the guy is thinking in the moment. He wants to win that day. He wants to win with you. He wants to, to score <clears throat> his points. And here he is scoring his points that were totally a lie, other than the clause that said, subject to my lawyers and all that. Um, he, but he is scoring by saying, I'm tough. I'm not worried about anything. I'm, I happily sit down with this guy. We're looking to do it. OK. But then you said it right there. He consciously storms in and tells a lie, and the result of telling that lie, he won the moment. He won the day. He did. So as much as we could say he's told 16,000 lies, and people are quitting, and they're leaking like crazy, and things are out of control, are they actually out of control? Or is all of this strategic planning from a president who may be completely shameless, but a president nonetheless? I, I wouldn't use the phrase <clears throat> strategic planning. Um, <laughs> or but, by design. But um, it's very much by design in that moment. And, and Trump is reacting in that moment uh, to try to win the day without thinking about the long-term uh, ramifications or without following a plan that's been carefully crafted. But are there long-term right ramifications? A, he might live there another four years. He might because he, because what he's doing day to day um, is winning as he defines winning, which is, is galvanizing his supporters, making them even more loyal, more, more fierce in their uh, adoration of him, 
and mobilizing them for the election. And, you know, he does this largely by gut. Uh, his lawyers can put together a 10-month plan for how to deal with the Mueller investigation, but he's going to act every 24 hours how he thinks it's in his best interest in that moment, given the news cycle and what he's hearing on Fox News and what Sean Hannity or whoever else is telling him at night. Then what has actually been the cost of this circus or all of these lies? I've been sitting here literally thinking about what that is for so long. Um, here's what I think is, is most worrisome to me as a professional journalist, and Phil and I have talked about it a lot. The falsehoods that he's injected into our bloodstream um, are repeated over and over again on Fox News yeah. and amplified. And then and believed by half the and, country. And believed. People are absorbing it and thinking that that is true. Um, that Robert Mueller was out to get him, that FBI agents um, had an insurance policy to make sure he wasn't elected. That's not actually what the texts are about. Um, you know, there were people really worried, by the way, at the FBI that the president was, forgive me, very worried about Donald Trump, the candidate. There were people at the FBI who were very concerned about the Russian contacts from the Kremlin to sort of minions within the campaign, super anxious about that. But he's been able to inject into our ether and into a lot of the country this assumption that uh, the FBI had a tainted investigation to try to not only un unmoor him and keep him from being elected, but to surveil him, which, you know, is. Nobody wiretapped Donald Trump, but I literally still meet people who say, you know, they wiretapped Donald Trump. And I'm like, no, they didn't. Um, it's just amazing. And that is, we're no longer in Walter Cronkite days. The consequence is people don't agree on facts. And Phil and I have an extra job in addition to bringing you facts. And that extra job is, is something the Post also takes really seriously, which is now we got to show you how we made the cake. we got to show you how we did the reporting, or else you're not going to believe us. And um, that's our new chore. The truth matters, but only if you hear it. Um, I want to talk more about the show that he puts on. Uh, you talk in the book about a phone call the president had with Anthony Scaramucci, who was press secretary uh, for famously 11 days. Uh, <laughs> Anthony the Mooch goes on Bill Maher one night and says, I've known Donald Trump for 20 years. This is all an act. This is a show he's putting on. And afterwards, the president calls him on the phone and says, why did you do this? I can't believe you did this. And Anthony says, it's the truth. You know it. And Trump says, you're right. It's all an act. I can't believe they believe it. Yeah, you know, Trump, first and foremost, is a showman, and he learned this in real estate because he wasn't just a real estate developer. He was uh, a tabloid sensation because he made himself a tabloid sensation. He posed as his own publicist uh, to leak gossip about himself uh, into page six. I mean, he so much of his, his energy uh, and time and resources in New York as he was rising through the business ranks was built around the show, built around creating a Trump persona, the Trump brand, uh, The Apprentice. And becoming president, I think in Trump's view, is the capstone of that. He actually lays out that career arc in his tweet, which is the very first time he used the title of our book, uh, A Very Stable Genius, which is his own words, of course, where he said, I was a you know, very successful real estate guy, but then I was like the most successful TV guy, and then I got elected president on my first try. I'm a very stable genius. He, of course, used more colorful language than 
than I just paraphrased. But the point is, um, I think he sees the presidency as the ultimate um, step in the show for him. I mean, he, he's the most famous guy. He brags about how he's now on the front page of the New York Times every single day. Uh, he loves that he can issue a tweet and then immediately turn on cable news and see the anchors, sometimes it's Steph, uh, reading the tweet, although we don't talk about the tweets as much as we did in those first few months of the administration, but he just loves his ability uh, as president and commander-in-chief to completely uh, change a news cycle and, and get the world talking about him, and that's all part of the act, part of the show. Is shamelessness his superpower? I mean, I think, um, you, use Ivanka Trump as an example. Ivanka Trump is, at, is in Davos right now, and she said yesterday, I gave up my life for this job. <laughs> Yet we know in 2018, based on financial disclosures, she and Jared Kushner, who are unpaid White House advisors, made $135 million. She has sat in for her father, or representing the administration, at the G7, the G20, the World Economic Forum, and the Olympics. Yeah. All of this being the case, we know that a New York judge has ruled that Ivanka Trump is not allowed to sit on a charity board because of misused funds in the Family Foundation for 10 years. For most of us, if that happened, we would sever our own heads with a nail file and flush it down a river in shame. <laughs> Yet, this shamelessness that's quite an image. I mean, just think a about little, it. A little yeah. visceral, yeah. Chef. I don't I know. Mean, imagine uh. that. But, and then to say, I've given up my life for this. Is that shamelessness and, and ability to let a book like this come out and keep on rocking their magic? Shameless is a good word that I immediately get allergic, hive feeling about because I'm a reporter and, and we don't give our opinions in adverbs. But I will say that um, if you want to talk shamelessness, then here goes. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm gonna, you know, Phil is like the dean of political reporting. I'm more of an investigative reporter and less about politics. I can't remember a presidency that would have survived the first few months of this one in which there was a travel ban against countries that obviously had a religious discrimination element in it as found by a court. I can't imagine a presidency that would have survived um, not one, not two, but five different cabinet members and senior officials traveling on private jets for private purposes um, to see a solar eclipse to get a private tour of the Vatican. I mean, we could go on and on. How is it that those people not only um, were tolerated but kept on by Donald Trump? If you wanna talk shamelessness, why is it that Ivanka Trump was allowed to use her uh, private email in government correspondence, which is against the Presidential Records Act? Why was she able to use her government email in personal business transactions, which would certainly give her the imprimatur of the White House? If you wanna talk shamelessness, why is it okay for all sorts of laws to be flouted that, are, that were enacted by Congress and signed by presidents? Why are we allowed to do that? It's, it's a stunner every time. And it, again, doesn't go exactly to Donald Trump, it goes to voters. Why is it that this is the champion, and as someone in our breakfast this morning said, why is there no tipping point for voters when Donald Trump does it? Remember, the Washington Post broke the story where he literally said, 
braggingly, I just, you know, because I'm famous, I can grab women in their blank. 